Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City, here are your middle-aged warriors, Chris Samino and Rick Summers. Hi, this is Rick Summers. And I'm Chris Samino here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Hey, welcome to our show, The Middle-Aged Warriors. Thanks for joining us. Hey, we're back again. We're, we're still on the air, Rick. Imagine that. <laughs> How are you on this fine whatever day of the week it is? Takes a licking and keeps on That's ticking. Us. Everything good with you? Woke up on the right side of the dirt. That's again. always important. One more time. We yeah, do it one really. more time. But uh, again, uh, <laughs> if you're still listening along, we're all still dealing with our middle-aged issues. And boy, do men have a plethora of those. We need help. I need Mid- a lot of it. Middle-aged them. Yeah. You know, uh, recently you had the good fortune of sitting down with a guy named Dr. James Hollis. Mm-hmm. Did he look at his watch and say, I'm sorry, we'll have to continue yeah. again next week? <laughs> there was no couch involved. <laughs> this was kind of on the, on the um, up and up. Uh, Dr. Hollis has become somewhat of an expert on the psychology of men at middle age. So before we tee up his great interview you did, uh, any great takeaways well, you, there were there are actually many. I mean, he he is a brilliant man. He's a uh, a Jungian. Uh, Doctor Jung was a, a famous psychiatrist and, and a, a way of treating people, uh, a technique in psychoanalysis. And he follows along in that school. But one of the things that that I walked away with is what we do typically as men, in particular, when we have issues, we tend to treat the symptoms as opposed to treating and finding the cause of those symptoms. And Dr. Hollis will be talking in great detail about that. So uh, let it roll. Here's uh, Dr. Hollis and myself uh, just a couple of weeks ago. All right, we want to welcome Dr. James Hollis to the show. Uh, First of all, I can't thank you enough for taking time out to speak with us today about really some very important issues impacting men's lives, as well as women for that matter. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Chris. We're in a time in history in which men are being readily vilified. And I heard your voice speaking a much more optimistic, a healing tone. And I really want to talk more in depth about that today. And I guess we should start with uh, you sharing a little bit more about this new project that you're working on. You're right. The What it means to be a man today is undergoing redefinition, as it has been for women. I think women are pretty far out ahead of us on this response. Because, you know, men historically have been defined by their productivity and by the need to keep things contained. When I've spoken to women's groups about uh, these strange animals called men, I said, try to imagine three things. First of all, if you could imagine that your closest friends, those people that you share your worries about with your body, your intimate life, your family life, your hopes and fears, but those, those friends are gone forever. You can't talk about those things. Secondly, imagine that you severed a link to whatever you consider your guiding source, your instinct or your your intuition, whatever you want to call it, but that's gone forever. And thirdly, that your worth as a person would be dependent upon your meeting abstract standards of productivity as defined by total strangers whom you never meet. And I said, if you could imagine those three things, then you'll feel the condition of the ordinary man, because all of us were conditioned in those ways. And when women hear that, they're appalled. They're appalled. They, the first thing they say is, well, how could I help? And the truth is, they can't. And, and secondly, how horribly isolating that is. And of course, it is isolating. Men have learned to keep secrets from childhood onward. 
when I wrote a book on men's psychology called Under Saturn Shadow years ago, I, I found I was actually uh, resistant myself to even talk about it. And I remember saying to myself, why is this such a difficult subject? And, and a voice came up that said, well, because we don't talk about these things. You know, you're supposed to keep them to yourself. And I thought, oh, well, maybe the function of this, this book is to tell secrets. And the first secret was we're all enlisted from childhood on in a conspiracy of silence. You know, you talk about your inner life or what you really feel about something and you're going to pay for it. You'll, you'll be shamed by others very quickly as we all were. Right. Suffering in silence was, was the way to go. That, that meant you were strong. You, you, you didn't need to exactly. bleed publicly, but the reality is that the healing of men is so desperately needed for our culture today. Obviously there's a lot going on that's being brought a little bit more to the surface with the me too movement, things of that nature. So you had something about the eight secrets that men carry, and one of the results of that, we were talking about the oppression of women out of fear. So explain that to me a little bit more. Sure. Well, look, we're born of women. We grow up surrounded by women, particularly our mothers, and uh, often have female uh, school teachers through the early years. And we sense the extraordinary power of women in our lives in the outer world, but also in the inner world because of that shaming and splitting off from our own nature. We tend to associate our whole inner life and our feeling life with the feminine somehow. So men get defended on, on both fronts, which is unfortunate because what it does obviously is leads to estrangement, estrangement from others and estrangement from, from oneself. So, you know, underneath all of that, frankly, in my business, because I'm a psychoanalyst, you, you sort of have to follow the anxiety trail. Um, you know, they say in investigative reporting, follow the money trail. In my business, you follow the anxiety trail. And you say, well, what's, what's the fear here? Or what, what's the, the anxiety is the sort of free-floating generalized state, but then in that are specific fears. And one of the fears men have is the fear of dependency. You, you have to be independent. Mm-hmm. You can't show that you're needful. Um, you can't show vulnerability. And to even go into this territory is, is to risk that very shaky hold you have on this uh, imago that you, you're supposed to be filling out every day of your life. You also talked about the rite of passage from boys to men and you know, some of the things that are passed along that really uh, weren't things that we could grow from. They were things that sort of ended up making, I think, most men feeling more restricted in their lives as they became men. What should fathers be teaching their sons today to maybe start to get away from that pattern repeating itself? Well, first of all, if, if there is a father in the domestic scene, and there isn't always, as we know, or a father who is himself intact enough to be a decent father... Um, but basically what he needs to show his son that it's all right to feel what he's feeling. It sounds so simple-minded, but it's, it's profound. It's all right to feel those things. I feel these things you share with your child. It's all right to, to hurt. It's all right to talk to somebody about that because that way you can relieve some of this. You get some of that out of you. And to realize that you're here to live your journey, figure out what is right for you and try to live it that way rather than just letting people around you define what it means to be who you are. You've got to give a sense of permission to be an individual, to, to give a, a sense of freedom to pursue what you really want to pursue. Jung said once, uh, to be a man is to know what you want to do it. And it sounds too simple, but right. <laughs> knowing what one wants means sorting through an enormous amount of traffic and then finding the courage and, and persistence 
over time to live it leads one into a, a different place. So how would somebody go about living their life more consciously, even having come out of being raised a particular way? You know, what are some of the steps and self-examination we would need to do? Well, ultimately, and this is not something any child hears or any any of us hear particularly until later in life, if at all, is it's not about fitting in, because fitting into a crazed world will only make you crazy. <laughs> it's, it's more about what is it that wants expression in the world through me, and what is it you find that stirs your imagination, uh, excites your curiosity, makes you want to address it, that you feel energized when you approach it rather than turned off. And for example, the number one tape most men have is, well, to be a success, you have to go make a lot of money. Right. Well, all right, what's it going to cost you to do that? How much of your soul do you have to sacrifice? Mm-hmm. And and what's the price of that? And, and that price, because it will produce. I have a, a client, for example, who said every morning when I got on the subway to go down to the office, I felt I was selling another piece of my soul. Hmm. And and I think, well, it's true for most men and how horrible yeah. that is. What's yeah. the price of that? So uh, along the way, I mean, this notion, one of the issues that happens in the second half of life, you've got to find permission to live the journey you want to live rather than the one that seems to be um, beckoning you out there. And it would be wonderful if that could be communicated to a youth and to say, all right, there's a price for doing it, but there's a greater price for not doing it. The question about that, I, I just know on a personal level, holding back doing that, there is a price to pay because there will be some type of a negative fallout, or at least what we're perceiving as a negative fallout, if we start to follow our more authentic self sometimes, because it goes against sort of what we've created up until this point. And now now there's this, this light bulb moment, and now it seems like you're you're blowing up a little bit of the past that you had created, and trying to feel comfortable about that, that's a slippery slope. Of course it is. And then again, how many of us have a good relationship to our inner life? And the answer is very few. <laughs> very few, yeah. Because we all learn early, it's risky to be responsible to that. It's easier to try to fit into what's going on around you. It, it happens in nursery school, it happens in grade school and mm-hmm. high school, and then it happens in the adult world. And if it weren't for something called psychopathology, we would be simple creatures of adaptation and live like drones. <laughs> and psychopathology, if you take the pieces apart in its, its word origin, it means the expression of the suffering of the soul. Mm. In other words, if what we're doing is really right for us, our inner life will support that and contribute to it. But when we're off course, it always shows up and pathologizes, produce symptoms. Mm. Uh, in other words, you could do everything you're supposed to do in your particular culture to be successful or to win the approval of others. And, and yet inside feel empty, hollow. And sooner or later, this leads to depression, self-medication, and a loss of soul, so to speak. So typically... If you were to see somebody what is labeled as, you know, a, a man in bad behavior, so to speak, you're saying that's manifested from this type of suppression? and Yes, it's actually a healthy reminder of the autonomy of the soul. And I'm using the word soul here as the literal translation of the word psyche from the Greek. And in other words, 
in my profession, we don't ask why, how quickly did we get rid of these symptoms. We rather ask the question, why have they come? Hmm. What are they asking of me? Why do I have these troubling dreams? Why have I been drinking too much? Why is there no sense of, of active engagement with what I'm doing anymore? See, th- th- these are actually healthy signs or healthful signs that are coming from inside where the psyche is refusing to cooperate in its abuse. Right. And therefore, it's a summons. In other words, the more we override that, that internal self-corrective system, the more we are going to be in peril. And so we have to, at some point, get knocked to our knees and say, mm-hmm. look, I've got to go back to the drawing board here and say, look, what, where do I go from here? And, and what is it, again, that wants expression through me rather than what is the world asking of me? Right. I mean, typically men in particular, they internalize shame, feelings of inadequacies, and that just continues to build sure. and build. It's self-defeating behavior. So living an examined life, I mean, that's sort of what we're you're dancing around with everything we're talking about. What is living, truly living an examined life mean? I mean, what was it Socrates said? An unexamined life is sort of like a waste of a life? or Yeah, it's not worth living, he right. said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let me just back up one little bit. Sure. You, you won't believe this, but I, I swear you, this last hour I was just talking with a gentleman who is in his late 80s, mm-hmm. founded a business, and he still feels, despite great physical struggle for him to get there, he has to keep showing up at his former business, even though it's been enabling run by, by successors and so forth. And underneath all of that was that complex, that driving engine that said, you are valued as you are productive. And mm. that complex has never let him rest. You know, yeah. it's, it's never let him say, no, I don't want to do this. No, that I've been there, done that. Now let me move in another direction of enjoyment or development for me. So those messages persist and we don't get rid of them. We don't solve them, but we can outgrow them. Mm. And there's a big difference there. So in terms of hitting that middle-aged crisis. Do you feel that that is that point? And I know when I personally hit it, there were moments where I literally felt out of control, out of my body. I just wanted to pretty much get rid of Mm -hmm. everything I had done. I wanted to go to work, quit. I was going to tell my wife and kids, I'm packing up my bag. I'm going to California by myself. I needed to prove Mm -hmm. to myself that I could be self-sufficient. And it it was overwhelming. I knew in my head, logically, it seemed very stupid almost, or inappropriate, or wasn't going to work, or too painful to to those around me. But it does Mm -hmm. and did manifest itself in some other behavior that, obviously, I was not proud of either. So, clearly, why do you feel at that point in our lives, what what tends to happen in your 40s and 50-ish, let's say? Uh, Mm -hmm. I know for you it was earlier, but but it could happen at any time, I guess. Well... When we talk about a passage, it means something has played out, something has died, and you may still be enacting it, but it's no longer working. And something else wants expression, but you're in that very difficult in-between. That in-between is what is really so painful. So it's not just midlife chronologically. It can happen when one gets downsized at work or retirement or old age Mm -hmm. or losses in one's life. Anything that throws one rather radically back upon oneself to say, now, who am I? And and what is my life really about? And who am I apart from my history? Or who am I apart from the roles that I play? And what you were just describing is a demonstration of the very substantial insurgency of the soul to insist. Now, we do have to go back to the drawing board, Mm -hmm. you know? 
uh, how to manage that and sustain a marriage or sustain one's, um, you know, paying the bills and things of that sort is very difficult, very tricky. But, you know, you, you have to try to do both. It's like, right. like the old question, do I do this or do that? And the answer is yes. <laughs> you do figure all of the above. Figure out a way to do both. Right. As Yogi Berra said, when you come to a, a fork in the road, take, take it. it. <laughs> and, you know, so you, you, you have to say at some point, this insurgency, uh, sometimes precipitated by outer events. And it was. And yeah. sometimes, yeah, and sometimes it's, it's really something that you wake up at three in the morning, the hour of the wolf, you say, oh, my God, I don't know who I am anymore. I mean, that's an invitation. I mean, it's so hard for us to think that that's a helpful thing. Right. But I say it is in the sense in which it gets our attention. It calls us back to the, the drawing board. It makes us reconsider, and you're doing it as an adult with certain options and a certain amount of consciousness and a certain amount of executive agency Mm -hmm. that you couldn't have had as a child. Right. Because those crises happen to a child, but then he or she is simply overwhelmed by the demands of the environment and the need to fit in that it all gets buried. And so it's like all that was buried down there is presumably gone, but like Jaws, it's circling down there, waiting waiting, <laughs> waiting for a moment to come surging to the surface, and that's what it is. Yeah, until truly, I guess, we we confront whatever you want to call them. I won't call, Demons is kind of a strong word to use, but we confront these things. Sure. They will continue to lurk. They will continue to prey upon us in different ways, upon our soul, I guess. But part of sure. that to me was that there's a feeling of guilt, I should say a sense of failure, or a feeling of failure. Sure. And, you know, how do we accept and learn from failure? Well, I used the phrase earlier today about being knocked on one's knees. I think, mm-hmm. yes, what, is, what has failed is the fantasy that ego consciousness is enough to manage all of this. Because mm-hmm. what this shows the ego is, you know, you're not the boss. The ego is, thinks it's the boss, but it's a tiny wafer floating on a large ocean. And it's easily overwhelmed by many things. And another way of putting this is when when the psyche revolts, as it does for everybody sooner or later in differing ways, with the rarest of exceptions, is sort of the employees in the companies. And we don't like these conditions anymore. And we're not going to follow the orders coming from the executive suite upstairs. (laughs) And so we're staging a work stoppage or whatever form we're going to protest through. And again, in my profession, rather than say how quick we'll get rid of these symptoms, like change this behavior or change that thought process, or here's a pill for that, mm. all of which could be helpful, but often is not. Right. What's really called for is, again, a reorientation of one's life where one has to turn and say, all right, if, if I'm accountable for what I'm, I'm very generically here calling my soul, what does it want from me? What is it asking of me? And how do I mediate that with earning a living and, and serving relationships and so forth? So it seems sort of in a nutshell, if you do run into these negative thoughts, negative what we perceive as negative thoughts, negative feelings, that's really our soul giving us a wake-up call. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Sure, sure. That's, that's the way our psyche grabs hold of us. Which I think is a hard thing for us to comprehend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. In my own life, I had basically achieved all my goals by the time I was 30, and I, I thought that's going to be enough for the rest of the journey. Mm-hmm. Well, at age 35, right on schedule, you know, the psyche reached up and, and pulled me under in a depression. And I had to, you know, address that question. Right. And in my case, it, it led me to, from academia to uh, re- completely retraining in another field and, and became a um, psychoanalyst. 
And it was a several-year transitional process, but it was uh, two different lives, each one good and valuable in itself, but in some way very, very different in terms of what they were responding to. Exactly. I mean, I, I guess my perception, which took me a long time to get to it, is that we are constantly growing, constantly learning, learning about ourselves uh, and about our souls and connecting to that. And you had said something I had seen in some video about, you know, we shouldn't be pursuing happiness. Really, we should be pursuing meaning yep. or meaningfulness. Sure. You know, tell me more about that. Sure. Well, it's kind of delusional to think that happiness is a steady state. <laughs> I mean, generally speaking, in the first world cultures, generally, Mm -hmm. And there are exceptions, of course. People have conditions of living, you know, food on the table, relative security, climate control, uh, a reasonably healthful life, etc., that our ancestors would have fantasized would produce something called happiness. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to ask, then you have to ask yourself, well, just how happy are we? I mean, people are adrift. They're spiritless. They're, they're following wills the wisp of all kinds. Happiness is a momentary experience that floods us when we're in right relationship to our own soul. It's not something that you can grab hold of. It's not something you can manufacture. Mm -hmm. But if the life you're living is meaningful for you, you will have happiness in doing it from time to time. Right. If what you're doing is right for you, something inside of you will always support you because you experience that meaning. And with meaning one is able to put up with struggles and conflicts and disappointments because there's something larger than the ego's fantasy of sovereignty or its fantasy of comfort that is being served. So the bottom line here is when moving forward to not be afraid of fear, to not be afraid of the anxieties we're feeling about where we are at that particular moment. Again, these are things that are telling us it's time to look closer at ourselves and, and start sure. to shift and start to do something about it. Sure. You know, Jung wrote back in 1912, the spirit of evil, which is strong language, the spirit of evil is negation of the life force by fear. Mm. <laughs> Only boldness can deliver us from fear. And if the risk is not taken, the meaning of life is violated. Mm. Now that's very succinct mm. and very much to the point. Yeah. We don't, free ourselves from fear. Only a psychotic person or a wholly anesthetized person is free of fear. And at what price? Right. Fear is part of the ticket. We are thoughtful animals. We are sensitive animals. We're very vulnerable animals, and we're aware of it. And so fear just rises naturally. I mean, if we, if humankind hadn't developed fears, we would walk right up to the tiger who's about to eat it, or <laughs> we'd walk into the fire. Right, exactly. So fear, at some level, served the survival of the species. However, we also know that it can metastasize and cripple our initiatives and cripple our lives, and, and that's when it gets to be very problematic. Well, I would love to continue this conversation. I have a feeling we are going to down the road, particularly dealing with different subjects on uh, our podcast. But for now, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you travel around a lot and speaking engagements. But again, thanks for joining us on the Middle Age Warriors podcast. So where's the best place that folks can go to find out more about your work? Well, I guess the easiest is a website. It's simply one word, jameshollis.net. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Same here. You have yourself a wonderful day. And uh, keep providing us all with the great work and, and the enlightenment, I think, that uh, not only men, but we all need today. So we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time today. You're welcome, Chris. Wow, dude. 
Did you get billed for that? Uh, you know, I feel like I got away with one there. That's like a freebie. I mean, yeah, this, really. this guy really did a great job of uh, psychoanalysis for me for free. But uh, I think for a lot of people listening in, they're going to be thinking a little bit differently today. Well, you know, you gave him a lot to work with, too, as the show does. Middle-aged warriors. And this is really yeah. kind of where we are in life. Well, and again, because it sometimes takes that long from childhood to overcome all the conditioning that the culture and the society we live in forces us to suppress a lot of who we genuinely are. I mean, it's one of the things I, it seems he was pointing to was who we think we are because of the way we're acting and behaving right. according to the norms of society many times is not who we really are. No, and there's a great term in psychology called authentic self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's that's the key. Are we authentic 100% of the time? And I think that's an evolving thing. And you, probably most of us, if not all, will go to our grave with some percentage of us still not totally being authentic because it's just the world we live in. And, you know, we serve ourselves, but we serve others around us, too. And therein lies the balancing act, the juggling act between how authentic you can really be. You know, it's funny. I was, just had this example of somebody stepping on my foot in the supermarket and me saying to them, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry you stepped on, on my, my foot. foot. Yeah. yeah, well, there is that kind of thing. But that is sort of one of the things he was talking about in particular when you have in a, what's conceived or perceived, I should say, right. really, as inappropriate or, or bad behavior or bad feelings right away we want to either cover that up or ask for forgiveness for it. But according to Dr. Hollis, really, that's a wake-up call from your soul, from your true self, your authentic self, telling you, hey, the life you're leading right now, this isn't the one I want to leave, fella. Come on now. Listen to me. You know, Even though it looks like, oh, geez, he's, he's having an affair, or he just wa- marched in and quit his job, or it could be a lot of things along those lines, but... It's your inner soul telling you something. That's when it's time for me to put my head back in the sand. sand. (laughs) Well, you know, but typically that's what, what, you know, a lot of us will end up doing. That's what we do. Yeah. But it's a a tricky thing because, as we were saying before, when you've established a life already, you've got the good career. The doctor even talked about having it himself at a young age. At 30 years old, he seemingly thought he had everything. By 35, he was so depressed, he couldn't figure out why. And a lot of men get into that position and you know, are still in a good place, in a sweet spot at 45, but yet they're not happy and and they're wondering why they're not happy. And uh, apparently it's because there's something inside of them that they're not fulfilling. They're not fulfilling their true selves. We have to get out of here? Me? Yeah. Why, am I on the clock? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Let's pick this up again, though. Yeah, I I think, you know, the conversations and the the issues and the topics that were brought up here uh, open the door to other conversations we can have about a lot of things. I mean, there's another part that we didn't even get into with the doctor uh, dealing with, dare I say, you know, the the feminine side of, of men. And part of being so afraid of dealing with that is the fact that you're going to be judged and you're going to be less of a man. And that sometimes creates other issues down the road. You know, he had said to me off air, watch a football game. Big 300-pound linebacker on the sidelines, right? Camera comes up close. He turns to the camera. What does he say? Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> ever says, hi, Dad. It's always, that's, hi, Mom. That's true. You know, and, and that's the point that, as he was saying, you know, generally when you're young, you're exposed to females and females' feelings and behavior. You know, the early grade school teachers, they're all women. 
And that does leave an imprint on males, but yet a man is told or, uh, you know, he has to behave a different way than these people that really have played such a huge part in the beginning of his life. Hi, Mom. Yeah, <laughs> see, there you go. But, you know, it's true. There's a, there's a lot more to talk about, and I'm sure we will as as we go through the weeks ahead. But uh, anything for you, take away from this that you felt good Middle about? Middle-aged warriors, Chris, Rick, and uh, we're on the Believe Podcast Network. We thank you so much for spending some time with us and look forward to sharing more with you every time we take to the airwaves. And we'll catch you next time. Sunshine always. Hey, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show on iTunes, preferably of five. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find us on Believe.com. That's capital B-L-E-A-V.com and at Believe Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.